I'd like to welcome everybody today and thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. My name is Karen Meenan and I'm an Atlantic Fellow. I've just finished a cohort with the Global Brain Health Institute. And these people are meeting today for the first time. I've never met them before and I'm really excited. I've read the report and I'm really excited to learn a bit more about it today. So we're going to meet three people. We're going to go to Tracy, first of all, and to Jay and to us, to Amara. But I'll tell you a little bit about all three of them. Jay Naidu is an elder. He's a grandfather and a social activist. He's played many roles as a student, community and political and union activist. He was the founding general secretary of the Congress of South African Trade Unions and Minister of Reconstruction and Development and then Communications in President Nelson Mandela's cabinet. He currently sits on the board of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, which focuses on building good governance and ethical leadership in Africa. He's an ambassador of the Africans Rising Movement, and he supports youth causes that co-create new activism based on movement building that puts ecology and indigenous wisdom at its centre. So we're going to meet Jay a little later on. We're also going to meet Dr. Amara Enya. She's the Managing Director of Diaspora Rising, a transnational advocacy hub that works to advocate, educate, amplify and connect issues of concern to the Black diaspora around the world. She also serves as the Policy and Research Coordinator for the Movement of Black Lives and is a Strategic Advisor for organisations, companies, political campaigns and public sector institutions globally. Previously, she worked in the Mayor's Office for the City of Chicago and has served as Executive Director of a number of community-based organisations. She's a grassroots organiser. Her work has focused on issues related to education equity, economic justice and environmental justice. Firstly, we're going to go to Tracy Yuste. Tracy is a Senior Atlantic Fellow and the Head of Special Projects at International Budget Partnership, IVP, in South Africa. That's a non-profit that supports grassroots organisations in informal settlements to campaign for improved services using budget advocacy and community-based monitoring tools. She's led advocacy, research and policy review initiatives in this role and has steered expansion of IVP South Africa's work to the health and gender sectors. So I'm delighted to be here today to moderate this session. So Tracy, we're going to go to you first. I got him. Hi, you're very, very welcome. So Tracy, I read your report. It's a six month long document about policy. Maybe first of all, before you go into telling us a little bit about the report, could you tell us a little bit about the why? Why did you start this? Why did you want to start on this six month exploration? Thanks, Karen. Thanks, everyone, for your participation today, and particularly to everyone who contributed to this research. Firstly, Amara Enya, my partner in this work, but also many fellows who were interviewed, the Atlantic Institute staff and the various program staff across the seven programs. So it very much was a collective effort. This program was initiated by the Atlantic Institute as part of the Leaders in Residence program with the fundamental question of how does change happen? How does policy change happen? What is policy change? What are Atlantic senior fellows doing in the realm of policy change? What can we learn from that experience? And how can the Institute best support fellows in their work? For me personally, this opportunity immediately grabbed my attention because I've had the opportunity to work in government directing public policy, but also work outside of government to advocate for policy change. And so I've got those various perspectives and it's hard no matter where you are, no matter one's positionality. Um, I've seen some successes and some failures with making change happen. And so this is, I think, a fundamental and important area, not only of study, but of practice and understanding. So that's what really drew me to this work. And I've learned a ton through the process, in particular from Amara as well. Having worked closely with her was really meaningful for me. Thanks, Karen. 
Thank you, Tracy. In the report, which I'm not sure if that's widely circulated yet, I know I saw an almost finished draft. One of the quotes I loved the most in it, it was policy is a little bit, it triggers people a little bit like maths. You either like it or you don't. So Amara, I'm going to go to you. What drew you to this report? And had you worked with Tracy before or was this a new adventure for the two of you? <laughs> it was a new adventure, but I felt like we have worked together before. It was just such a great experience working with Tracy. And of course, I definitely learned a lot about the program, about what we were doing. Just to echo her sentiment, it really was a collective effort. The outreach, the engaging with the fellows, we had many questions and everyone was such a good sport and really helped to support and ensure that we were able to come to where we are. And so it was just a very good and a very enlightening experience for me as not coming from within the Atlantic Fellows Program, having that outsider perspective and bringing the lens of what policy change looks like, both from a government perspective, but also from an organizer's perspective. And because we are at a really unique time historically, I mean, in the last two to three years, we have been faced with some significant shifts globally and so how those are impacting the work that fellows are doing, the questions that we ask, the way that we push our work forward, our advocacy strategies, these are all very, very timely, especially now. And so it was really enlightening just being able to delve deeper into the thought process that fellows have and how this is playing out in the work that they do with the hope that what comes out of this is some tools and ways that the Institute can better support the work that fellows are doing. Thanks so much, Amara. In the report, it names that you did one-on-one -on -one interviews that lasted either one hour or two hours with 27 fellows across seven programs. How did you pick the 27 fellows? Did they come to you? Did you cast the net really wide and say, if you'd like to get involved with this, please come? Or did you seek them out? Was there a bias amongst the seven programs I'm from GBHI? Was there an equal amount from each program? Or how did you work that out? I'm going to throw that one to you, Amara, and then maybe to you, Tracy. How did you actually figure out how you were going to get this magic number of 27? Well, that was what we were able to do in the time that we had, but we definitely were very intentional about wanting to make sure that the interviews were geographically diverse, that we talked to individuals from all of the seven programs. We took into account background, ethnicity. We really wanted these interviews to actually cover the scope of the fellows program, which is incredibly diverse, people from all around the world. That was our top priority. We didn't have a screening process on who we wanted to talk to. We just knew that we wanted the voices to really represent the breadth and the scope of the fellows program. Tracy, I'm going to come to you again. You started only last July. So the report is phenomenal. And I had to double check with you. Was it July 2020 or July 2021 for the amount of work that was in there? Was this your full time occupation doing this for the last six or eight months? No, it was not. I work full-time for IBP South Africa, leading advocacy work, supporting grassroots organizations to advocate for basic services in informal settlements, but then also I work around health. So I took this on in a part-time capacity. I think I'm in a bit of a fortunate position in that I was able to make the time zones work for me a little bit to enable me to be able to do the interviews and obviously the desktop work as well. I was really drawn to this work. I thought it was so important to be able to engage this community around this question and also just to help me think about what it means for my own work. 
that I was determined to find a way to be able to do the work I do in South Africa and in this work with the Institute as well. It was only possible because so many people availed themselves. The programs assisted us in recruiting fellows to participate. The Atlantic Institute provided a lot of support for us throughout the process. And I see some of the senior fellows we interviewed are even on this call. So everyone was really generous with their time, which I think really enabled us to do the work in that short time frame. Great. Thanks, Tracy. Jay, I'm going to bring you in now because there's another lovely quote from the report and I'd like to get your take on it. It talks about community. So community is a community of belonging, a community of thought leadership, skills exchange and development and a community of impact. That's very rich. (laughs) Yes, it is. And I sit here amongst you all, having been an activist over many generations, actually, from the 70s and tried to understand how the policy environment has evolved over those years. We never had the luxury of this type of communication technology. And so for us, policy was policy made in the trenches. As we call it, we build the road as we walk it. And there are some useful lessons out of that because policy development has become a form of professionalized art and expertise. And I come from a time where policy was driven from the ground. If I take my role as an organizer in the trade union movement, we started off with unions that were illegal for African workers to join registered trade unions. So we had to fight for the right to trade unions and trade union rights, workers' rights. And how do we come to a conclusion about what would be these rights? Well, it was meetings in halls, in sugarcane fields and in townships and outside factories where we devised what would be the rights we fight for. And we spent an enormous amount of time in educating ourselves. So I think that for me, one of the most important lessons as an activist was to shut my mouth and learn to listen. And I remember coming out of university, we were dropouts from university following the 1976 Soweto uprising. And by the time I hit the factory gates by late 79, I was coming in from a perspective of an intellectual that had been talking about the transition from apartheid to socialism. And I'd written this very militant pamphlet, (laughs) talking about why workers need to unite and organize themselves. And I stood outside that factory gate for the whole week, standing there because there's three shifts and you stand there from half past three in the morning till 10 o'clock at night to catch these shifts. And virtually no one took the pamphlet. And when they did, they threw it away. And then you have to ask, well, this is a great expansion on the rights of workers and the revolutionary role of the working class. Until one day, an old man came past me and said, hey, you, sunny boy, come and walk with me. And as I walked with him to the bus stop, he says, you know what? You're a very disciplined and very committed young activist. But, you know, the first thing, you're standing outside the factory gate. Anyone who talks to you is getting photographed and will get victimized inside the factory. Second thing is you're talking about political rights and you're talking about the great class conflicts, but actually people in this factory are just worried about working conditions, about wages, about being abused, about pregnant women being fired. So why don't you start where they start? And maybe if I suggest to you that rather than standing outside the factory gate, get on the bus with people, get off where they get off. And if they invite you in for a cup of tea, then you're making progress. And that's where you learn where policy matters. Because policy that is incubated in a laboratory has no impact on anyone except the ruling elites and those that draw up the policy. 
And so ultimately, policy has got to have impact. It has to be transformative. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. So I think those are some useful lessons that come from an age before technology and expertise and the professionalization of expertise. And it makes perfect sense when you explain it like that, Jay. The phrase that we often hear is meet the people where they are and talk about what matters to them, not what matters to you. But you did exactly that. Meet them on the bus, listen to what their stories are. And if you get as far as going into their homes, then they'll be able to explain to you what the story is. Yes. So, Jay, 1979, that was the year that my father died. So a very formative year in my life. But it was 43 years ago. So now 43 years on. What keeps you motivated? What keeps the spark going in you and you still have that fire in your belly? What keeps you going? <laughs> well, if you look at life and you try to understand what is the purpose of this life, then it has to be to do something worthwhile, to transcend the limitations of our mind, of our body, of our intellect and say, there is a greater purpose. There is a greater belonging that we've been given the privilege of this life. And this life we should celebrate. And therefore, we should celebrate it in a way that raises our consciousness. Now, when we talked about consciousness, we've always talked about spiritual consciousness or political consciousness or any form of consciousness, consciousness of the environment. And so I come to a point where I understand that changing systems is not rocket science. Like in South Africa, it could take us decades, probably centuries. But ultimately, we will change the system. And that's what we did in 1994. We changed from a racially defined heresy against humanity to a democracy. Well, if that was a great transition where we rose above our differences and sought to find the common ground from very divergent positions which were adversarial and which was a low-scale civil war, why have we reached the point where we are today, where 77% of young African youth leaving 12 years of education, have very few skills, no job, unlikely to have a job in their lifetime, and we've left them behind. Why is this happened? That's when I realized that actually changing systems is half the equation. The real challenge is to change us as humanity, as people, to rise above the differences that we have created, differences of race, of religion, of sexual orientation, of culture, language, whatever it is. We have created these differences, and these differences will either destroy us, or if we rise above it, we will realize the full potential of this human life we've been given. And that is to aspire to a higher level of consciousness where we recognize that all life is equivalent. Even this coronavirus has the same rights to exist as we have. So if we start to look for root causes, why do we have war in our world? Why do we have a threat of nuclear war? or conventional war, or arms race? Why do we have these viral pandemics that are inflicting us? Why do we have a situation where we have a climate crisis? It all comes back to us, one species amongst millions, billions of other species that has become, not to achieve the full potential of human evolution, but have become actually predatory to everything else that exists in our world. And if activism doesn't challenge that root cause, then frankly, having spent many decades in this field, we're just wasting our time. Mm. You brought up something that, and Namara, I want to go back to you as well, because you referenced it. We've had an incredible two years when you think about it. We've had a global pandemic, climate chaos, and now we have a war in Europe. 
These are huge moments in anyone's life. We've got these three enormous moments right now. Also, of course, when you go to the whole Black Lives Matter, take it that other stage further. These are giant causes in anyone's lifetime. But to have all of these at the moment, is that exciting for you? Exhilarating? Frightening? Threatening? How do you feel about being in the world at such time of chaos? Well, it's a bit stressful. I mean, there is so much happening within even just my generation those of us who were born in the 80s and beyond, we've had so many cataclysmic things happen in a relatively short amount of time. So there's a lot to deal with. I wanted to go back to a couple of really critical points that Jay made that I believe are salient for the work that we all do, and specifically around the notion of what it looks like to engage people where they are in the role of policy. Because this came out in the report. So when we were first doing these interviews, we knew that we couldn't even make an assumption about how people understand policy. We also understood that there's a connotation of policy as being sort of this realm of the elites or this realm of only those who have gone to school for four years or four plus years have the ability or the capacity to engage in policy. For those of us who are in this work, we have to reject that premise the most relevant policy actually comes from the people. And our role as organizers, for those of us who consider ourselves to be organizers, is not to tell people what's good for them or tell people what they should be wanting or needing, but it is to engage in that conversation and the listening that Jay talked about. What are you hearing from people? And then it will begin to emerge what are the policies that actually most resonate with them. The importance of removing the veil or the mystique around what it means to be a policymaker, removing this notion that it's only reserved for those who have direct access to the corridors of power. It's only those who went to school. That's a very significant point that came up in our conversations with the fellows throughout this report, because the most effective policies are the ones that are most relevant and impactful to the people with whom they were drafted. And when we see when policy doesn't work, it usually comes about from those who are developing policy in a vacuum, in mm. an ivory tower or in a back room in City Hall, or they never bother to actually talk to the people who are at the center or should be at the center of that policy making. So I wanted to just emphasize that point that Jay brought up, that the conversation, the listening is critical as folks who are engaged in the policy making space, but also just opening it up that it's not just reserved for those who have a degree, that in fact, some of those criteria, as it has become very professionalized, are designed to actually be gatekeepers. And it's designed to gatekeep who can be a policymaker, who has the right to sit at the table. And nine times out of 10, that comes at the expense of regular folks. It comes at the expense of the working class. That was just something that came out as we were doing the interviews in the report that I think was important to shine a light on. Thanks, Samara, for that. Tracy, I'd like to bring you back in now as well, because in the report, there are two things that struck me as being very powerful indeed. One is the differences, and maybe you'd explain this for all our participants here today, visible power, hidden power, and invisible power. Maybe you'd explain a little bit about those three. And then also the Honduras example you gave, which was power within, power with, power to, and power over. So I found those two parts fascinating. Maybe can we go to the first bit first, which is visible power, hidden power, and invisible power. Maybe you'd explain a little bit further about those three. Thanks, Karin. What we really wanted to emphasize with this was to say that 
There are lots of other forces which influence how change happens. Policy is one process and one avenue to affect change, but a lot of change happens outside of a policy framework, and that's really because of different forces of power. Funding, for example, is a big, powerful force which influences policy change and policy decisions. And I mentioned often those are exclusionary forces by design, often intentionally so. So we wanted to acknowledge the importance of power and the significance of it and and the importance of power mapping and understanding those various dimensions of power, but also to acknowledge that people who are often perceived as or considered as powerless or voiceless in the process actually hold a lot of power to effect change. And so tapping into that power is significant. And we see a lot of the work that fellows are doing is focused on not just the content of the policies and the issues that the policy is trying to address, but addressing the process and working with that power that's vested in people who have lived experience, people who the policies are supposedly trying to impact, but are often excluded from those processes. Within the report, we just try to disaggregate or give a nuanced perspective on those various aspects of power. Visible power are the obvious things, you know, some things people, when they hear policy, think about government, you think about budgets. Hidden power are things like you might see the Minister of Health being the holder of power for that department, but he or she has a slew of advisors, other people influencing them are pulling the strings, but giving them advice on how to direct things. And then invisible power are the things that are in society, norms and practices. Funding, as I said, is very powerful. Where the money sits, there's a lot of influence. And there's a lot we don't even know about how wealth is influencing government decisions. So we try to unpack that a little bit. And then the Andrudis example is really about saying, let's delve more deeply into what that means for the individual and for communities themselves. But the work I do supporting grassroots organizations, a lot of it is focused on firstly acknowledging there's a lot of agency, social capital and power vested in some of the most impoverished communities in our cities who do not have access to some of the most basic rights. How do we work with them to tap into that agency, to build their confidence, to engage government? Part of that is saying This is how a government budget works. This is where your community fits in. These are your rights. These are the services you should have access to. That speaks more closely to power within and power with. And so, yeah, just trying to give a more nuanced perspective of power and what it means in reality in terms of influence and affecting change. Brilliant. Thanks, Tracy. Jay, I'd like to bring you back in now as well. Can you please outline for us policy change versus policy reform? What does that mean to you? It depends on what perspective you're coming from. If I go through my own experience, we didn't seek to reform apartheid. We wanted to eradicate it. We don't seek to reform exploitation. We want to eradicate it. So it often is what's your starting point? What's your point of departure? And that influences the policy direction you would take. I can talk about my personal experience. You know, after a while of working as a former community organizer, stroke, student activist, etc., workers suggested to me, why don't you go and work in the factory if you want to become an organizer? And I say, brilliant idea. So I got a job in a textile factory, which was organized. And I had to be in 12-hour ships looking after these machines with thousands of needles. My job was to stop the machine when the thread broke, one of the thousands of needles in these machines. And I had to take care of like eight machines. And I got into real trouble because during the day, I thought while working wasn't too difficult, I'll still be an activist and I'll pitch up there and 12-hour shifts. My God, I was sleepwalking at 12 o'clock and in a lot of trouble. 
but it convinced me, and this was a racially divided factory, deeply divided. And it taught me the basics of organizing, even in the context where different ethnic groupings had their challenges and prejudices. And I thought that was really important. And this is about immersion. What is your lived experience? I think for those of us of color here, you know, lived under the affliction of racism, it's hard to explain it to a person who has not lived that experience what racism means. Because mm. there's visible, invisible, hidden, mm. subtle. Mm -hmm. It's everything. For me, I prefer dealing with Afrikaners because they'll call me a coolie to my face. Whereas an Englishman, we all traditionally said, well, they'll behave as if they feel that abolishment of slavery was a terrible thing. But we usually had a sort of, well, don't trust your back. Hmm. My great-grandmother came as an indentured laborer, which was a slave, to South Africa to work on the sugar farms. So that lived experience is really something important. And if you don't have it, but you have the privilege of education, of a roof over your head and meals on your table, well, use that privilege for something to immerse yourselves. Mm. We used to call it class suicide. I'm not expecting you all to do that. Now, but you forget about where you come from. You're going to live with people. You eat in the hostels. You sleep in the car. You hitchhike. Lived experience is the real product which makes policy. Yeah. Otherwise, you're articulating your own intellect. So I think these are very important lessons that we have to learn on the process of policy making because the arrogance of policymakers is unbelievable. Here you have a billion people that will go to bed hungry today, raising families on less than $2 a day. And you want to go and tell them what their priorities are about, what is important for them, because you think a school is really important because everyone needs to be educated, or a clinic is more important, or something else. But maybe they've got a different idea to it. And how often we see the world littered with these white elephant projects where with the best intentions, we've created atrocities as worse as those of our presence. We've demobilized. We've actually made people frustrated. We had a thing in the union movement, and we had a clash with people in the communities who wanted to use the power of a national strike or a stay away, as we used to call it. And I say, you know, it takes us years to build up a factory. One disaster strike, it'll take you 10, 20 years to rebuild that organization. So they had different ways in which one operates in the reality of the trench. And too often we are reductionist. We think change comes because we had Mandela or Jane Naidu or Cyril Ramaphosa, the current president. No, change came because people said we have had enough mm. and we will not collaborate with our oppression or our exploitation. And we were facilitators in the union movement I had no power to make vote, even though I was elected. It was dominated by people who had to come from the shop floor. I could never go and meet an employer on my own because I had to have a mandate. I had to give a report back. I could be fired or beaten up. So these are tactics of activism that while we can say that the world has changed and technology has allowed us to talk like this, there are some basic principles of organizing. Because policymaking without organizing, well, you're in a speech contest and you want to see who's the cleverest dick in the room. That mm. doesn't change lives of people. Wow, thanks, Jay. And Evie, to wrap us up this evening, reflections on what you've heard. <laughs> really difficult to follow that, but delighted on behalf of Atlantic Institute and the Atlantic Fellows community 
to take the opportunity to thank our panellists, Jay, Amara, Tracy. Thank you so much for sharing such profound insights, both personal and professional, on how and why change occurs. A couple of brief insights, very brief. Firstly, to Amara and Tracy, our leaders and residents, for the thought and careful approach to exploring questions of new K in brackets, thinking on policy and how change occurs. In particular, what is evident is how you have both modelled how new knowledge or thinking is constructed. It is through dialogue and democratising information and the process. It is about recognising that everyone has knowledge and that in spite of what we have been told, our knowledge matters. So thank you for creating 27 on-ramps in the tapestry that you've woven in terms of your report. To Jay, thank you for your wise insights and sharing of yourself, your activism, your reflection, your praxis. So much of what you shared resonated, particularly new, again, K in brackets, how knowledge has been constructed, whose knowledge systems have been privileged and whose have been erased or attempted to be erased. Part of our work is the reclamation of those ways of knowing and being, and that all of our community knowledge systems matter, our own lineages, our own cultures. What also resonated for me were your comments about lived experience being really important, and that lived experience will never come from reading about it, from observing it, or from even imagining it. If we don't have that lived experience, it compels us to use the privilege that we do have. And that privilege means nothing unless there is action. So I really wanted to say thank you and to acknowledge one cannot talk or write about things in places where one has not walked. Finally, thank you, Karen, for your gentle and graceful, as always, holding of this conversation. Thank you so much. I want to close with some very brief words in my first language. And then a quote from one of my homeland's most profound, I think, activists, and yet this elder did not make the front page of the newspapers, although he recently passed away and his funeral was screened across New Zealand and across the world. He was described as the activist in stealth. Half the time, the New Zealand government and those who were writing policies didn't know what hit them. I also wanted to finish with a beautiful quote from him. So, nei ka mihi aroha koutou katoa. And this quote from Moana Jackson, we are not alone in our struggles, we stand in the light of our ancestors.